Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Figure Podcast. So I'm going to go to you first. What have you been enjoying this month? Diving into the archive of Desert Island Discs. Haven't done that for ages. And I listened to Julia Samuel, who's a psychotherapist. That was a beautiful episode with Kirsty Young. Uh, I would also recommend two episodes of How to Fail. Uh, first of all, Emma Barnett, who's the new Women's Hour presenter and who wrote a brilliant book called Period that I think we... Did we talk about that when I read it when it came out? But I don't know if we talked about it. Anyway, it's a very good read. Would highly recommend. Would also recommend Period Power by Maisie Hill. Quite different books. You can kind of read them. Actually, if you read them one after the other, you will be like an expert on periods, which is quite a fun place to be. Do you remember we went to that thing and I won that quiz about like sex, periods and cycles and like which hormones <laughs> surge at different times of the month. And everyone was like, why is this girl such a nerd? <laughs> I remember that. I know. Yeah, I was very proud of myself. So funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but there were some dumb questions like, can you still get pregnant on your period? I was like, uh, why would people answer no for that? Like, there is always a risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were really good at that quiz. I feel yes. like I was learning stuff and you were just checking your knowledge. Yes, well, at age 20, 21, I had a total meltdown about the fact that I have to have contraception forever, basically, and went on a deep dive of intensive research. And as such, I'm now an expert. Yay! <laughs> Uh, the other episode of How to Fail that I would recommend is Alexandra Burke. And both of those episodes actually were so emotional. And my God, like she just, Elizabeth Day does this with everybody, but I feel like she created the a space for both of these women to be even more honest and even more themselves. And it was such a privilege to listen to their thoughts and reflections and, and kind of summaries of different parts of their lives. I'd really recommend both of those episodes. Have you got any podcasts to recommend? Yes, I do. And with the Alexandra Burt one, it was really interesting hearing how fame has affected her life. Similarly, this theme of fame, Amanda Knox, I listened to her on Whitney Cummings, her own podcast, Labyrinth, which she hosts with her husband. They had Malcolm Gladwell on. I find that sort of thing fascinating. I find listening to her experience fascinating, what it was like to be in prison at age 20 to 24. It's just fascinating. It was listening to a podcast, Table Manners, where Jessie Ware had her sister join. And she was talking about her new show, The One, on Netflix. And it is about, she plays the lead, and it is about a scientist who discovers that you can be genetically matched with somebody based on their DNA. Um, and there's a very controversial way in which they discover this, which is one of the issues. It's very, very tricky around sort of data, consent. And then if you're given this ultimate choice of being able to find out who your perfect match is or your one true love, do you take it? Because they explore lots of different storylines around this. Seeing her change again with fame and money, she becomes like a billionaire, basically, within 18 months, going from a PhD student to a billionaire. And she always has security. She's always under constant threat. And it's quite an interesting look at how much of a prisoner you are, really, if you have that sort of profile. But I thought it was well cast and well put together. Yeah, I completely agree. So interesting. 
There were certain points of it where I wondered if the filming had been impacted by COVID because there were certain scenes where it sort of went from like zero to a hundred and they didn't really have a build up. It was really weird. You kind of came out of that and you went, oh, that was a massive revelation in terms of the storyline, but it didn't really seem like it was finished. That's really my only criticism though. I think that the the acting, it means there were sort of points where I thought, oh, you've kind of gone over the top on that or whatever. It wasn't as well acted as some other Netflix stuff I've seen previously, but Hannah Ware was phenomenal. And I think that the jumping back to how she was previously before founding the company and then her as this new look, CEO, incredible like right. characterization, almost like she was playing two different characters. It was, absolutely. Um, and they captured that essence of being a student being very quite carefree and they're always in the pub with the beers aren't they and they're very they're all, they're all very close that group of friends and then go back to current day and everything is completely different I think I think you're right Sha. I think it's it's not it's not the best tv show I've ever seen in terms of acting in terms of storyline but it it's so enjoyable nonetheless it is it is and it's based on a book which I think you can definitely tell because the story is I, I love the storylines, actually. I think it was so clever, so layered, and not too jumpy, but kept you on your the edge of your seat because it was jumping from this to this and this, but, like, weaving them together, and then they would overlap and the characters would meet from the different stories yes. that we've got going on. But it wasn't too complicated, like, that you had to sort of concentrate. The only thing, the other thing that was weird about it, do you think that they should have cast slightly different-looking people? Because there were certain white characters who all looked really similar so like the security guard and the husband Ethan they looked really similar and then there was like a friend Lucy who looked like the detective Kate and there was sort of points where we were looking and we were like oh yeah no they're different people (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true actually yeah but other than that it was really well cast and and Mm. I think it raises so many questions around marketing and dating apps and the whole kind of for the greater good utilitarianism aspect where at some points this is why she's such an interesting central character I was going to say villain but that's what makes her good because you don't you can't actually really label her sometimes you get the sense that she is so obsessed with finding matches for people that she will go to any means in order to that Mm. to realize that goal but then also what is so good with the storylines that are not to do with her you see that her idea of this app changing everything for the good is not true and that it really messes with people's heads and if people are in a relationship that is not quote-unquote a match through her app it drives them crazy and they then you have the jealousy aspect and the but what if and and people can't understand it and then it's sort of you get to the end and you think wow it's so So the psychological component is enormous here. Like if people didn't realise that this was their quote unquote match, would they have had that connection? I don't know. Like it's really, it's fascinating. Yeah. They, they, they explore that they, they potentially would, but they wouldn't pursue it because that person might be married. And it's not even as simple as, you know, thinking, okay, if I'm single then yeah, I'll go for it. And if I'm in a relationship, I won't because you as a single person might be matched with someone who's been married for 10 years with children then what do you do because then you come to the point where you think well my one match quote unquote is taken and I can't be with them so then you're sort of 
signing up to be miserable. But then I guess that person who's been married 10 years, who has children, has, has revealed themselves to be found. So you know that actually there might be a, I don't know, not a weakness, but they've revealed themselves, right? So they've been looking for the match too. And I think she is committed for everyone to finding their match, but I also think she's just a scientist who is an entrepreneur as well and is driven by her goal of setting up this company and finding this incredible way of doing that. And that's what she, I mean, you can see when they're in the lab and they're talking about their work, but that's really what drives her, I think. And and obviously the, the power and the money that comes along with it. Yeah, I think she was too excited to have found something that worked not to share it. And that is where, that's like her fatal flaw, really, if we're talking about it in terms of Greek tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) The first figure that we're going to talk about today is Meghan Markle, who was born in 1981. She grew up in L.A., Uh, She considered a political career as she interned at the American Embassy in Buenos Aires, but she didn't pass the notoriously difficult exam. Uh, She then went on to become an actress, having studied international relations and theatre at Northwestern University. Uh, She's most known for her role as Rachel Zane in Suits. She was also in Horrible Bosses. Fun fact, I didn't know until I did the research for this podcast. Um, And another fun fact is that between her roles, she was a freelance calligrapher. She taught bookbinding and then she did modelling. She then married the film producer Trevor Eagleson in 2011. They divorced in 2013. And then she met Prince Harry in 2016. They announced their engagement a year later, 2017. They married privately three days before the very public wedding that they had at Windsor Castle in 2018, and they had Archie in 2019. And last year, they announced that they were stepping down as senior royals, and they then moved to California, back to LA, where she grew up, which is the location for the very, very talked about (laughs) Oprah interview. There have been certain things since the interview that have been proven and disproven. Their marriage certificate legally says the 19th of May and the Archbishop of Canterbury has confirmed that's when they were legally married. Um, Which I think is sort of adds to potentially the camp of why do an interview like like that? Because there's not going to be a right of reply for the other party. And these sorts of things come up. And we'll talk about succession issue as well later um which was also incorrect so i think it showed a lot of generational divide even though that's fairly obvious but i do think that younger people overall had more sympathy with them than maybe my parents generation who really didn't mm. um and i think it aged less well than the initial impact because it came out on international women's day there was a sense of real compassion with what Megan was saying about her mental health and about race. I don't think it goes away, but I think then a couple of days later, it was revealed that Sarah Everard had been found and was murdered. And then we had all the visual vigils about reclaiming the streets and violence against women. And it, it, it really kind of put that into perspective a bit more. You know, what also didn't age well is their podcast 
initial episode, their holiday special, which I listened to in January when we're in lockdown number of 5,000. And it just was so miss. It just completely missed the mark because so much of that podcast was looking ahead to 2021 and being super positive and like, oh yeah, it's going to be a great year. And it was just so premature. It sounded so disingenuous listening to it. And that was only two weeks after it came out, something like that. And it was also, I think, hugely over-edited, which I think is probably Spotify's fault uh, rather than them. But it's all around the red tape that they they come with, which actually has made me think about the Oprah interview because, for me, the big failure of that interview is their failure to check their privilege because of certain words that they use, for example, saying that they are trapped, which I think that it's difficult to find a word that, sort of will convey that sense which I completely can see I can see that that's true you see it from what we know through the crown which I know is fictional but it does give you a flavor of what that might be like we've talked about fame we've talked about that trapping feeling of not being able to be in control of your own life anymore but what is difficult is that if we were if they're in their mind they're comparing themselves to their wealthy friends And that's what really just, especially you're talking exactly right with the timing of it, it just came across like they did not know who was watching this interview. Yeah, well, I think they also had an American audience that was probably a bit more sympathetic. I think the American audience doesn't view the royal family tradition in the same way that we do. I mean, that's a huge generalisation, but I do, I do think that the American public probably see them more like celebrities. The royal family is more like a celebrity and therefore would, you know, when she talks about how actually what life is like as a working royal is you're so limited in terms of your freedom. Um, I think we don't find that as shocking, maybe, as, as the American public do. And, and in America, it's very much like, you know, make your own freedom and, make your own choices and you can you know become famous if you work hard enough and all of that um so maybe there was that element to it but I yeah think, yeah it I soured also, quickly yeah I also wonder if there's an American perspective coming in on the whole protection issue because for lots of people who are British watching that the idea that the palace could protect you from the press is like laughable Like nobody can do that. You can't be protected, quote unquote, from the press. They can respond with spokespeople, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it fuels the fire. It's just a kind of monster. And I think that she, her naivety, but also her American upbringing is key in why this has become such a mess. Because, and the other thing that I find interesting is what people have not talked about and not highlighted. They've focused on the discussion around the baby's skin colour, her suicidal thoughts, and that just made me cry when I watched that. It was horrible seeing her say that out loud, and I think it was a really, really brave thing to do to impart that part of her life, but something she's obviously able to do now that she's not in that place anymore, which I'm really glad about. But what they didn't talk about was things like the story of um, the curtsy, you know, when, when she met the queen for the first time and Harry turned to her and he's like do you know how to curtsy and she honestly thought it was a joke like she didn't think that that was something that you had to do and she just didn't really get it in a way that 
me and you growing up in Britain, having the royals as a thing for yeah. forever, it's like, yeah, yeah, of course you've got to do that. And her mum saying, did Diana ever do an interview? It's like, mm. oh my God, yes. One of the most famous interviews ever with Martin Bashir. So it was that that I think is really, really interesting as a sort of foundation of what then has transpired with the press, the palace, the establishment. I agree. And I actually could kind of believe that naivety, right? Like that actually came across to me and I thought, mm, do you know what? I find presidents, for example, quite interesting. So I, I probably would know more about the sort of how the office of the president in America works. But if I was to marry like the son of the president, I actually wouldn't know what the protocol is. And actually, I wouldn't know that I have to stand my hand on my heart to sing the anthem, for example. So I, I could believe that. That's, that came across as authentic. I thought that that intro part of the interview did come across well. And when it went to first commercial break, I just thought, oh, she's actually really nice. But then when she in, when they went into talking about life being like lockdown in the palace and that your keys are taken away from you, your passport's taken away from you, you can't see your friends. Well, actually, she made several international trips during that time to Canada and America. There was that baby shower that got loads of attention as well. Similar to your point about checking your privilege, you do really need to remember who you're talking to when you say that you have no freedom and can't leave your palace because you could have your friends come to you. There was there are many accounts of that happening um, and that the palace did all sorts of things to make sure that her, her mother could come over as much as she wanted and all her friends and all of that sort of thing. I do sympathise with her, though, on the point about being protected by the palace press-wise. And the issue of Prince Andrew then comes up because that summer when Harry and Meghan got so much terrible press about taking the private jet and God knows what else, that was the, the summer Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide, was arrested, and then that terrible Prince Andrew interview with Emily Maitlis... And I could see, actually, that maybe they did kind of use them a bit as a distraction because William and Harry are so well loved by and consumed by the British public and the world. And I, I could empathise with that, especially with Prince Andrew. I feel like he's very well protected by the palace. The palace always defend him, don't they? But you can always see him pictured with the Queen day, mere days after these allegations come out. So I could empathise with that. I could too, I, I think. And actually what was interesting is that um, in doing this research is I looked up those articles which compare Meghan Markle to Kate Middleton and they literally criticise Meghan for one thing and praise Kate for another. My The most hilarious example being the avocado, <laughs> which was mm. described as a morning sickness. It was all like, oh, look how sweet. She's having an avocado, which, you know, William is getting for her and it's so lovely. And then the other one is like, <laughs> Megan eats an avocado, which is linked to drought, human rights issues and millennial shame. <laughs> it was just so ridiculous from the same paper. But what was I think I don't think it's so well known as this piece, which is also on BuzzFeed and highlights where the press have said something about Kate and where the palace have responded and all of these different situations where they have said nothing for Meghan. And they are normally over. They're not huge scandalous things, but I think that over time it's built up and then it's become this practice and pattern. that The palace does not respond to things to do with Meghan. 
And it's just, it's sort of not valuing them in the same way. Like that's just not fair. You need to have an equal approach. And that's what they have shown has not happened. That I was less aware of. And if that is true, that the that we can really put that next to each other and, and say that Megan wasn't responded to, that the palace didn't respond in the same way, then that's absolutely fair enough. But actually, the comparison with Kate, that was something that aged badly in my mind as well. Initially, when I saw the interview, I thought, fair enough, you're defending, she's defending herself. She's saying, actually, the opposite happened in the story of, so Megan made Kate cry and Megan saying, nope, the opposite happened. And she apologised and she gave a note and she gave flowers and all this. And everyone's kind of going, what the hell happened? But we've got to remember that week before the wedding, there was all those terrible stories coming out about her father. Again, I blame the press here completely. You know, they went after her father and set him up. That came out. Kate had also just had a baby. She'd given birth literally two and a half weeks before the wedding. So I can imagine. And she has two toddlers. She's also the mother of the future king and probably has opinions on what her, you know, her children's image and like all of that sort of thing. So I think yeah, I can completely see how that would have happened. What wasn't aired in the original version was Megan addressing this point about Kate and Megan in the press. And she very clearly said, Weighty Katie, which was what Kate was known as in the press before she got married, is not the same as the treatment that I got. Um, mine was racist. And I felt, I'm not disputing that, I think there was definitely elements of racial, of racial slurs in, in that. But I didn't appreciate how she went after Kate and said she didn't have it as bad or that wasn't as bad. We don't know Kate. Who knows if Kate was suicidal before she got married? We don't know. Doesn't appear like she was, but she might have been. She was followed and hunted by press for years. They were so horrible about Kate about her parents. Um, her mum was this sort of like scheming tiger mum who set up this whole thing, you know, that she was just waiting to be married. She didn't have a job. She didn't have a career. She didn't have any of this. Like, well, no one would hire her because she came with 25 paparazzi wherever she went. And I noticed as well with members of my family who are older, who are very critical of Megan, they had this view of Kate back in the day I remember very clearly having a conversation with my mom and being like, oh, I don't know. She's quite like, doesn't have her own job and doesn't have this. And now loves Kate. And I'm like, mom, but don't you think that that was the press very much influencing your opinion of her? Because now you, now everyone loves her. So how does that, how, how does that work? And I think that the press are also to blame for a lot of what the public feel about Megan as well. Because when the press Absolutely. supported her... When the press supported her, everyone seemingly loved her. Having said that, the day of the wedding, I heard two separate conversations that were purely racist. One of the most racist things, two of the most racist things I've ever heard in my life. So that was there. That was definitely there. But I think since then, Kate has, has sort of shown in these, like she appeared at Sarah Everard's vigil. She's released a video about Diana and they showed like artwork about Diana. Um, she did a school visit like two days after that interview. I feel like she's going to be bolder because I think for years she's been just very respectful and happy to be in the background and actually you might see more from her. 
Yeah, no, I think that's really, really interesting and good points to make about that. It's very easy to forget how the press hunted Kate because it hasn't happened for so long now. And it's all been all about Megan. And I mean, Megan said this herself and I completely agree. They've done this heroine villain setting them against each other but it clearly sells papers and magazines which is what they're aiming to do which is very sad I also think it was a different time as well that Kate married into the royal family you know we've made so much progress in terms of gender in terms of race in terms of conversations around women in the media you know 2011 was still feels like a stone age compared to now in terms of what we can actually talk about and this avocado issue actually shows that for me because back when in 2012 avocado was this like Gwyneth Paltrow superfood and now you know it's oh millennials spend all their money on avocados and avocados are causing climate change and all of this sort of thing I think it's a different world I also think there are positives of that right like Megan was invited to Sandringham before she was married for Christmas Harry and Megan very openly lived together before they got married they got married very quickly I don't think those sorts of things would have been possible actually in 2010, 2011. It felt very traditional. Kate, you know, comes out of hospital straight after having a baby. I think those conversations would be different in 2021 now. I think people would find that a bit strange, but I think there was a lot of tradition still around the royals and the brothers. Yeah, and I think it's also on the photograph point they they've sort of made it seem like this is this huge tradition that all the royals do and they don't it's a diana thing that they obviously asked her and made her do i I can't imagine that she voluntarily went into that but she had to do as she was told and then kate has carried it on but we're talking about the future kings here we're not talking about harry who is not going to be the future king and his son so i don't see why that's such a huge issue and like everyone making a massive point about it of all megan's ignoring it it's like, no, it's a different, they're different people. Well, uh, well, this is another thing I blame, again, blame the press for. The press told the whole public that Meghan, specifically Meghan, had said, no title, he's going to be a normal boy, we're not going to tell any details about the birth, and we're not going to do a, a hospital photo or whatever. When This is when the palace should have stepped in and said, actually, the act of succession by George IV states that great-grandchildren of the monarch do not get a title until uh, their child, so Charles, ascends to the throne. Once Charles ascends to the throne, then Archie will be a prince. The palace should have just nipped that in the bud, but they didn't. And that is where I do agree with Meghan. They should have just explained. I think where she has inferred that he hasn't got a title, potentially either because of his race or because... I don't know, that they wanted to change the rule for Archie. That's incorrect. He was never going to get a title unless the Queen specifically changed the law around the act of succession. Zara Tyndall's children, Zara Tyndall doesn't even have a title, but her children don't have titles. Princess Eugenie, her son, doesn't have a title um, and won't until Charles becomes king. So I thought that was very interesting how she explained that that's how she interpreted that, because that that was never going to be the case. The fact that the security is tied to the title, I guess that changes the issue, and I can completely understand why they would want to have security for him. It feels strange that Prince Harry's son 
under the royal umbrella wouldn't qualify for security because it's Prince Harry's son. Like, of course he would. But then, okay, fine. He needs to have a title to have the security. Why don't they just have private security? Which was another issue that I thought was, again, in in your privilege comment. I actually looked up, like, how much security costs. I think I was on a Taylor Swift deep dive because um, there was an article about how much her security costs, and it's a million dollars a year, and she pays for that, obviously. She's not part of the royal family. So I guess a million dollars a year is a huge commitment, right? And like Harry said, you you'd need a job and a salary, really, to actually pay that. So maybe they should have been clearer about what they meant. I think there was sympathetically security being cut off, but surely they would have done a handover or like made sure that there was private security involved. Totally. And I think that brings us on to the final things that we need to talk about. First of all, the access to mental health support. But then again, it makes me think, okay, so you went to the palace or the establishment, as she refers to it, you ask for help. They said, we can't do anything because you're not an employed member of this institution and then you go well okay surely you can go and do something else like but then also it makes me think but actually you can't just call up a random therapist because you'd probably be terrified that you'd be recorded and then sent out to the press and she made a reference to the friend of diana and i'm almost 100 percent sure that this is julia samuel because julia samuel and diana were good friends when Diana was alive and um, Julia Samuels was made the godmother of George. And I'm so glad that that she had at least one person that she could reach out to and know that it was going to be kept confidential. But also at the same time, I'm like, how did they fail so spectacularly on that point? How could they not allow her? And did they actually not allow her? Or what what is the other side of this? Because there are always two sides to the story. I want them, I want to know what happened here because it's such a huge double standard as well. How could the royal family have evolved into this group of people who have actively supported mental health campaigns, most recently the Every Mind Matters from Public Health England, and then this comes out and it completely undermines and floors the whole thing. It's really, really unsettling. Uh, yeah, I have several thoughts on that, um, which is... I totally agree. I think we underestimate that you can't, you literally couldn't just call any clinic. But then at the same time, there are really high profile celebrities do go into uh, clinics and they they are anonymous because that's by law. As when you're treating anyone medical, you do have to keep that private. But I'm not going to contest that because actually I don't know enough about the ins and outs of security and actually how the logistics of how that would work. What I will say is it is really disappointing seeing this mirror with Diana. Firstly, so much press attention, so much negative press and intrusion. And then both of them talk about this feeling of feeling extremely isolated. Now, the difference with Megan is she has seemingly a happy marriage, whereas Diana really didn't have any. But I feel like the royal family should have learned that lesson of going, okay, we actually should have some more support here for members who are going to be very high profile how do they differ to Kate Kate has seemingly extremely strong family which I think we cannot underestimate the level of support that they give her because Megan and Diana did not have that they had a fractious relationship with their family they had a very difficult early childhood Meg, you know we've seen in the press Megan's you know been cut off from her father and her siblings and 
so forth. And her mum lives in America. And I think Kate probably just had such a stable back. This is going to sound like a criticism of her, but it isn't because I'm actually, I really like her a lot. Um, but Kate, Kate doesn't want a spotlight or to like, she doesn't come across as someone who goes, oh, I want to change the world. I want to change the conversation around this. I want to do this. I want to do this. She was, she, you can always tell, like whenever she has to speak publicly, she looks very nervous. She doesn't want to be centre of attention, but she does work very hard and is very passionate about the things that she works on, which is an early childhood, pregnancy. She has so many initiatives around mental health that she works on that I think she does a very good job at. But essentially, you can tell Diana and Megan definitely had much more of an, just a need to be vocal. Be vocal because I don't want to. I don't want to say be in the spotlight because I. That makes me sound as if they're attention seeking, and I don't. No, and I don't think they are. I I think that they're just they express themselves in different ways, and they're very comfortable being on a stage and talking to crowds and millions of people. Whereas Kate doesn't choose to do that. Kate is very different, and I think that's why she could handle the scrutiny a lot better yeah and I think the difference is that Diana and Megan are communicators and performers and they use those skills to incite change for good namely I mean we could give so many examples but Megan's UN women's speech of 2015 amazing she highlights the change that she managed to to do which is really extraordinary when she was only 11 she wrote to the first lady among others to say that she found this this Unilever ad saying that women all over America are fighting greasy pots and pans. Very disturbing and had actually caused people in her class to make misogynist comments. And as a result of these letters that she sent off, it was changed from women to people. And she talks about that in conjunction with all of the other feminist work that she's done. She's done a lot of, you know, before she ever met Harry, she had her blog, The Tig, which she interviewed inspirational women for. She's been an active, very vocal, bold feminist for a very, very long time. And so she had something to be stifled. Whereas Kate is much more quiet. She's not a public speaker naturally like that's she's just a different type of person not to say that she doesn't do as much good they do good both of them but just in different ways yes exactly and also Kate met William when she was 19 and had 10 years of lead up to getting married they also lived together in Wales like far away from the press or paparazzi for in their early marriage as well. So they didn't have that like immediate spotlight. Whereas I think I have this theory as well, that there was so much pressure on William to be really, really careful about who he married, right? Because of the Diana thing. And everyone was like, oh my God, this seems to be really, really slow. And they they even addressed that in their like engagement interview where it's like, okay, it's been 10 years and they've literally given Kate every chance to back out if she needs to kind of thing. Whereas Meghan and Harry, it was like 18 months. Yeah, that's also the difference though. Kate knew wide eyes open what she was getting herself into. Yeah. And from what Meghan has says, she did not. No. And I think that Harry has a lot to answer for for that because 
he should have realized that you need to make it clear what this is really going to be like. And he clearly didn't. Or he did and she ignored it. I don't know. Because look, this is the thing. We all have so many things to say about this. So many people have opinions. We don't know. Like you, Everything that we're seeing is being fed through a filter of the media or through an edited Oprah interview. And I'm really glad that they did it because it's one of the first opportunities that they've had to speak for themselves and tell their side of the story. But you also have to remember that there are editors, there are producers, there are lighting, there are this and this and... Mm-hmm. I'm also really glad that they chose Oprah because she asked some fantastic questions. If you're going to do an interview of that style, you go for Oprah. Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Didn't you find that in the lead up to that, that everybody had seen that this clip where she goes, were you silent or silenced? Like 50,000 times before it aired. <laughs> yes. But I think it's such, so good. She did it so well. I loved everything. It was brilliant. So entertaining. But that is the other thing that, for lots of people, the royals are entertainment. Which brings us to the commercial issue point, because we have to cover this. What are your thoughts? Because this really has been like the final tipping point for a lot of people who've been on Meghan's side, quote unquote, if we're having sides. And then they've been like, no, this is too much now. This is like leaving a bitter taste in my mouth. What, what do you feel about it? Well, again, I'm going to come back to blame the press here. The press have filtered this information to us in a really kind of divisive way when they first signed the Netflix contract, the Spotify contract, with like these headlines that buy Harry and Meghan sell themselves, sell the royal family out for a $150 million contract, right? That's how it's portrayed to us. And I go, okay, God, well, that's going to that's gonna divide people, isn't it? When actually the facts are, they, for one reason or another, cannot be part of the royal family and working members, even though they did address that they tried to do this in a Commonwealth country, which I thought was interesting, Um, you know, live in New Zealand or South Africa or Canada and still work when called upon. For some reason, that couldn't happen. Not sure why, but that couldn't. Okay, so they 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 do need to earn money. Security does cost, according to Taylor Swift, a million dollars a year, right? Okay, so we're going to have to let them do that. We're going to have to let them make their own money. Harry's recently become chief impact officer of a Silicon Valley company, which I thought was kind of great. I thought... Um, I love it. I think yeah. he'll be brilliant. I think he'll be great. And I think I think people will look back on the commercial stuff and be like, oh, okay, well, that needed to happen for them to establish themselves as independent people. And I don't, I don't think it leaves a bit of taste in my mouth because like they are royal, they have a platform, it's a fact. I think I saw some criticism of she addressed that this was this idea that this was her plan all along to become really famous. And I don't believe that either. I I do feel like she left her life in order to be with Prince Harry. However, that does mean that you're going to be a thousand times more famous. And she did know that. And I don't, I don't buy this thing of like, oh my God, can you believe how bad, like, of course I'm not thinking about my own brand. Of course she was thinking about her own brand. She very much knew that as Duchess of Sussex, she would be able to be on the world stage as a huge player in terms of having conversations about the world and how political, environmental, all these issues. So yeah, of course she did. She, before, I didn't know of Meghan Markle before she was Prince Harry's girlfriend. And I think a lot of people would 
agree with me on that front. Yeah. But no, I think it's great that they're working. I think it's great that they have these commercial things. And I think they, they, they will do a lot of good because actually the issues that she's passionate about are very legitimate. And she loves the spotlight as well. She's an actress. She loves it. Like She's, she's good, at good at it. Yeah, she's going to be good at it. Yeah. I also think that's true. I mean, she she clearly knew that as a royal and as part of what she would be doing and, and helping and that very elevated platform, she would be able to do more charity work, more speak to more people, help more people, address more topics, blah, blah, blah. Like that, that's obvious. Of course she knew that. Yeah. And she has done that. But I think what she didn't realise is the limitations that would be on that. And that's, I think... Exactly. What's really refreshing actually now, and what I am interested to see all of this commercial content that they do, I also don't have a problem with it. I'm like, it's a toxic capitalist system that we live in that has created the press that has just destroyed her. She might as well just use, play the system. Like, yes, go and get your million dollar deal. Like we're all going to watch it because you have interesting things to say. You're a good spokesperson. You believe in things that I believe in. Why not? We're in a, exactly. We're in a capitalist structure. That's how it works. If you if you need to work, then great. I think the, the wider conversation that this is set off when the queen passes away. I do not know how they're going to justify it. I know. I think they've got a really the really... main takeaway from this this whole saga is why do we have a royal family? And I think they have missed a massive opportunity. Many people have said this with Megan coming in, introducing something new, having somebody, and also like setting some things that were so badly wrong, like right, that this whole, you're not allowed to marry this divorced woman previously. Mm-hmm. And then, but it, again, we see the same myths playing out. Like just like Wallace Simpson, Megan has been painted as this manipulative scheming woman who's got Harry wrapped around her little finger and she's made everything happen and he hasn't played any part and he's like bewitched by her it's just bullshit like he has actively played a very important role in all of these decisions to protect his family and I'm so happy like when he was talking about how he goes to the beach with Archie and is riding around on a bike with him. It's just like breaks my heart because that's what he wasn't able to have himself as a little boy. And that is people's, that everybody should have that. No, Everyone should. They, he did, but he did. So this was a funny part of, part of the Christmas interview. There was an article that came out and there was this photo of Charles, William and Harry on bikes, biking around the whole moral at this lake. Now, obviously, that is just a snapshot. We don't obviously we don't know the full picture. You can't just make from a photo be like, okay, that's just it. Harry feels that that he did not have that experience with his dad. And you know what? That's probably true. He's Prince of Wales. He's probably extremely busy. But it is just funny that there is a photo of him with his dad yeah on a bike um but um, I know what the fact that there's a photo of it probably shows exactly what's wrong that he can do this without being photographed I think that's the key difference exactly exactly um, also Harry hates the press like he's been so vocal about that like there's an interview with him when he was 17 and he says yeah I don't want to live in England really when I'm older I hate the press I hate that my life is being followed and also he had a really long-term relationship with Chelsea Davey that was sort of on and off for many years. Um, and they look, apparently, according to whatever source you want to believe, whatever, they were really, really, really close. And he, and she was such a big reason as to how he managed to find kind of a sense of purpose after his mother died. Mm. And she took one look at that 
well, not one, I think many turns of that life and just when that's not for me, I can't have my life torn apart. And she's a solicitor herself and I think was just happy to be a private citizen. I don't know, I think Harry is very aware of the reality that he can't even marry someone that he wants to marry because they don't want that life. Presta bonus, I think, is the same. Which is probably why, if and if this is true, he did not make it clear to Meghan what it would actually be like because there were probably... Yeah, exactly as Chelsea had done, run away. And who wouldn't? I wouldn't want it. No, I actually wouldn't. I really, really wouldn't. No way. Just to finish on some positive notes, very exciting that they are due their next baby. Um, I hope that it all goes well. I hope that she keeps on talking about women's issues and menstrual health and miscarriage and all of these incredibly important taboo topics. And I just wish them well. And me too. Next figure that we're going to talk about in today's episode is that 86% of women have been sexually harassed in a public space. Um, And this is a stat for women aged 18 to 24. Uh, Charlotte, yeah, Charlotte and I are very much not. We're part of the 25 to 34. 34 category now new age bracket (laughs) we're in a new age bracket exactly um but age is a privilege and sadly this is why age is a privilege um sarah everard will never have her 34th birthday because she was kidnapped and murdered walking home from a friend's flat in clapham and this is what sparked us looking at this statistic there was so much noise after her disappearance both good and less helpful and actually it was rightly so I found it really hard to engage with everything that week because it was so close to home and there were so many conversations going around about women feeling safe on the streets and why women have you know imposed curfews this guilt that I feel when um I'm currently living in Nottingham at the moment through lockdown. And Nottingham is known as quite a, it's not a safe place necessarily. And, you know, anytime I go out at, at night, I just think if I get murdered and raped right now, no one is going to have much empathy for me in this. Obviously, my close circle will, obviously, but I'm, I'm talking about as a statistic, right? woman age 25 walking at night at 10 p.m in Nottingham immediately our press filtered lenses well what an idiot right I feel like the press do that so much um interestingly with Sarah Everard she very much did all the quote-unquote right things in terms of wearing bright clothing walking on main roads with CCTV and well well lit she called her boyfriend for 15 minutes of it she was walking home at what, 9.15, not that late. Many of us have done that before. So I can understand why there was criticism a little bit about how this is a very unusual case, potentially. Um, I personally don't think so, but potentially being unusual because it was um, at a time where, I don't know, it's not too late and she was on the main road. And also this was a police officer, which means that I would like to know more and I'm sure we'll find out more when when, it, when the trial happens but did he know her before was he stalking her 
like what happened because that is very very strange that there was a police officer that was actually responsible for this but you know it was lockdown so lockdown does mean that the roads are quieter um and maybe there were less people around but it was so chilling that story because it just could have been any of my friends or me yeah i think it's very very easy to identify with yeah, I think I have a lot of thoughts around this and, and the way that the media has presented it. One of the problematic things, I think, is how certain people, and this has become even more so in lockdown, I think because of the silence of news. Like we have, we, there is just generally not so much to talk about, which I think, again, is why Meghan and Harry's interview was so sensational that people become symbolic for an entire section of society experiences, things that have happened, abuse, like horrible things. And I think that it's really dangerous actually, because like she just had a normal number of friends and family to everybody knows her name, but nobody actually knows her. And then they'll forget about her in not very long. And I think it's really a very weird phenomena. And it, we saw this with Madeleine McCann, right? She's become the symbol of kidnapped children. children. Yeah. George Floyd has become the symbol of black people murdered by American police. Mm. Why does this happen? And I think we need to like address of, of the dangers of this for mm. that individual's family. It's also oversimplified, right? Like when you, right, you said, when you pick out these individual cases, the whole thing about sexual harassment and abuse is brought up when actually, yeah, I can completely see why that, that's related to Sarah Everard, but like we're pinning every issue about sexual, men versus women, male curfews and all this stuff. Domestic, I mean, domestic violence has become a huge topic that's been talked about within the Sarah Everard week. And I'm like, okay, yeah. But that's also not, again, it's 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 tied so loosely around this. And you know, there was also a lot of talk about how because she was a white female that there's got a lot more press attention. I remember seeing posts about different uh, women of colour who had gone missing at a similar time in lockdown. I thought, God, that's so that's the other thing, you know, well. between between the time that she went missing, third of March, and the confirmation of her murder, in that time. An average of one woman is killed in the UK every three days. So there, statistically, there were other women who were killed in that time. We'd have heard nothing about mm. it. That's my issue of like this imbalance and sensationalized yes. press that can just go sour. And because the other flip side of this is, yes, we've had lots more open conversations about sexual harassment, which is a very important thing to talk about. But also, I imagine that the level of trolling of online abuse all of that will have gone up as well so it's not you can't keep framing it in this like oh this like me too wave has happened yeah. like it's not that's not a good thing <laughs> yeah no 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 well exactly and and um what really annoyed me was this men versus women issue that that's brought up a lot when we're talking about sexual harassment and sexual violence because again that's oversimplifying it we go male violence against women. That is, in, in itself, that phrase is meaning all males violence against all females. 
And already that's far too oversimplified um, mm. and creates even more divisive rhetoric around this topic when the amount of men that are also murdered in public places, I think is higher. I think that yeah, it is higher. violence against men is, is significantly higher, not sexual violence and, and rape, which is separate. But again, those two were conflated. And so then we started having headlines about that more men are murdered uh, per week than women. Um, and they're separate things. Oh my God, this is so bad. This is so, because of course, that's a massive issue. If I had a son these days, I'd be so nervous the entire time because boys go out more than, I guess they, they might be out later or there's a certain confidence that there's less sexual violence maybe against men so that, I don't know, they're more exposed, but men get stabbed and, and murdered and all those horrible yeah. things all yeah. the time as well. And this is from a small section of male perpetrators. Yes, they are more male perpetrators. There's not nearly as many women that are murdering women or men, but it's still small. Um, but I think what I would add to that, and this was covered so well in this TED Talk, which we will link, about the semantics around violence and why sexual violence against women is why is it described as a woman's issue when it's a men's issue statistically it is men doing this to other men or women and so it's not and this is basically he did he explained how when we describe something as a woman's issue men switch off same with gender issue because in the same way as race issue white people don't see themselves as part of that gender issue men don't see themselves as part of this i'm generalizing and i'm i'm summarizing his points but it's well worth watching is i hadn't noticed it before of the way that we use active and passive language so it's always like this number of women have been assaulted this number of women have been raped this number of women have been abused what about this number of men have abused women it's always flipped around and then the men are left out of the conversation and back to your point of the small number of perpetrators, yes, but these perpetrators, more often than not, they are your friends, family members, like they are people that you know. And actually, that's what's so scary and why we need a cultural shift and change. And why is it that every woman knows another woman who has been sexually harassed, pretty much, but nobody seems to know any boys who have done this? And that is an issue because I personally know multiple people, all of which I would consider my friends, who have not, and it's out of their character in general, but that is not, that doesn't fit with this narrative of small perpetrator. Like, it's a widespread issue. No, 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 but we're talking about two different things here, Shah. You're talking yeah. about sexual harassment. I'm talking about, like violence on the streets and like yeah murder. and those are two different things and the small perpetrator thing it definitely is with your point i'm talking about sexual harassment where it's not such a small perpetrator. yeah and i know i know i know boys uh myself like you said who are friends who have done very questionable things and yes everyone everyone knows a woman who has been sexually harassed or has had it happen to them themselves yeah let's actually just insert the definition here of sexual harassment just so that we're clear about what we're talking about and we don't conflate things so this is from un women who were the people who released this statement and actually while i'm talking about that other research they released this research while i'm talking about that i think this is why it's become such a fury because this research was released on the 10th of march which was the same day that the 
police officer was confirmed as being arrested on suspicion of murder. So we had, a set, like this sounds very horrible clinical language, but we had a case study and we had the research and then we had people worried sharing social media. I think that's why it's been such a storm. But anyway, okay, so the definition of sexual harassment, according to UN Women, is unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favours, and other verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature. This includes actual or attempted rape or sexual assault, unwanted pressure for sexual favours, unwanted deliberate touching, leaning over, cornering, or pinching, unwanted letters, phone calls, texts of a sexual nature, unwanted pressure for dates, whistling at someone and catcalls, looking a person up and down, and inappropriate workplace behaviour, which includes sexual innuendos, comments, turning a conversation into something that it wasn't previously. So, and that isn't the entire, there's a huge page of all the things that come under this. But they think this is why that stat, going back to it, of 86% of women aged 18 to 24 have been sexually harassed in public places. No one I know is shocked by this, especially because the definition of sexual harassment is so broad and includes wolf whistling and catcalling. I mean, that happens. It's just, but this is the sad thing. That should not be a normal thing that me and you have known about, expected almost, from the age of, what, 13? Yeah. I'm so grappling with this. This is a big issue of, like, men versus women generally. But, like, I, for example, my, like, the men who are closest to me wouldn't, catcall or wolf whistle or pinch someone or grab someone in an unwanted way so I'm like okay it's definitely not all men that do this like that is certain but what he talked about in this TED talk was this idea of, of this sort of behavior being kind of socially acceptable or maybe encouraged in like a non-direct way Bystander. Um, yeah, like a bystander seems like, oh, it's just banter. Yeah. Um, and I just think, actually, that's so disturbing that you have girls age 13 or 14 that, that will be, they'll have that lens put upon them um, in a sexual way that just shouldn't be allowed to happen. And I've also seen commentary about how, oh, that's just how the world is, or there, there are bad people in the world, and that's just something that we have to we have to grapple with. But also, sometimes they're not bad people. Sometimes it's yeah. just something that they've done, again, because of the culture yeah. and the peer culture, because they think, oh, it's just a laugh. This is what we do in our group of friends when we're together and we've had a couple of beers. That's what needs to change. And the way to change it is by bystanding men who do not do that themselves but complicit they're complicit because they're not calling it out and it's really uncomfortable like I'm not saying that this is easy at all but if you want to change something in your own experience if you read all these headlines and you think how can I do this how can I help men or women or whatever gender you identify with actually need to call out the bad behavior yeah I, I just I don't know what to think on it I, I I'm constantly going back and forth in my mind of you know, as a female, I'm like, oh, I have to take responsibility for myself. I have to make sure that I'm not walking down a dark alley with, you know, an exposed outfit. I need to make sure that I'm not intoxicated when I, so I can make rational decisions. I need to make sure that I'm not out at night. 
But then I do think, oh, God, it's so boring that I have to think about all these things because otherwise I could be so unsafe. And again, this is this is turns it into a woman's issue. Right. And it shouldn't be. It's a people right. issue. Mm. I, I think as well when there are things like alcohol and drugs that when that starts to come into it as well, again, which has come up in this, this Sarah Everard aftermath, even though it was something to do with Sarah Everard case. <laughs> But it's, it's there. We can't, we're not going to ban alcohol for all 18 to 24-year-olds. You know, that's a big part of university. It's a big part of being a young person. And we're not going to have a 6pm curfew for men. I mean, that was such a... It's t- very typical of social media and Twitter with the very short amount of characters that you have because it take, it doesn't take into consideration domestic violence. I think that's where that came into the conversation again. It's mm-hmm. just... It's like that's not, that's not the way to make something better. Like, don't ban stuff. Yes. We know that that doesn't work. <laughs> it's yeah. it's not, there is no one size fits all fix, you know, for this. It's a really gradual shift and everybody has to be, be part of it and everybody has to call out and have those uncomfortable conversations in the same way that we try. And I, again, I don't want to conflate things, but in the same way that we now talk about race issues differently, like that, the conversations that we have now are very different to the conversations that we had five years ago. Yeah. And that's important. And it's just gradual change towards being more equal and kinder to each other. The third figure that we are going to talk about today is one of my favourite Charlie Mackesy drawings, which appeared in The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse, which came out in 2019. And it says, home isn't always a place, is it? Question mark. And it has beautiful horse and everybody on his back and a blue sky. And it's gorgeous, as all of his drawings are. And the reason that we're talking about this is partly because of the challenge and fundraiser that I did. When was it? My whole sense of time has been completely Last warm. Sunday. It's actually only a week ago. Where <laughs> I asked people what home meant to them. And we raised money for two art therapy charities and so since then lots of people have come back with their answers in their drawing form one of my favorites is an espresso pot which says bought from a deli in my home patch one of a few constants once blue now a coffee and flame sustained patina we also had an extendable dining table we had my godson who said home to me equals mummy we had a teddy bear with a heart in it which is because of home is where the heart is phrase we had lots of people drawing their pets, including me and you. So thank you to everybody who joined. Thank you to everyone who donated. So what does home mean to you, G? London's a big part of what home means to me. Um, I think there is an inevitable connection to the place that you were born and raised. Um, I think my mom What is it specifically about London? Like, are there kind of sounds and smells and, yes. and like, sensations? Yes. Well, the, the, the area that I grew up in, I know like the back of my hand, right? And and the smell of that area, the buses in that area, the shops, the um, the beauty of it. It's a very beautiful part of London. It just feels so familiar and like comforting. Um, and I feel so safe in London because I know it well. I feel like I know it well. And so I just, there's a sort of an ease of going around London and I'm feeling very connected and having lots of memories 
you know, some of the most hilarious memories in, in and around London. I think my mum's house is probably quite a place that means home to me. I think that probably would change depending on where she lived. I don't think it's the physical house. Mm-hmm. It's where she is. And I drew my pet uh, cat when we drew, you know, when we were doing our drawings last Sunday, because I think pets are, they go along with wherever normally your mum is or where your, home, your you know, family home is. And mm. they, they just make the house a home, really. And I also think I like the extendable dining table idea because I think that home is also just people around a table that are meaningful to you, whatever table that is. Sharing a meal, sharing conversation. Essentially love, isn't it? It's like home is love. Um, mm. And belonging. And belonging, whether that's with a partner or a parent or a child or mm. your best friends. Yeah. What about you, Shah? Well, I did a very long Instagram post when I launched the challenge and it listed a whole load of things. And for me, like you, it is it is sort of a place, but it's mm. it's more this silhouette of the part of Fife that I grew up in, which has the May Island, the Bass Rock and North Berwick Law. And you can see the silhouette. It's it's as you come down the hill, if you're going to my house, that's what you see. And it's like, as soon as I see that view, it's like, I'm home. But it carries on to my favourite beach, Ruby Bay, to walk it. That is why I love it so much. Partly it's because of this silhouette. I see it when I go to Ely, which is near Ruby Bay. I see it all the way along the coast. Like all of the my favourite walks around home always have this silhouette. I think it is my house as well because I've been there for almost my entire life. It's a very special place to me, but it is that, I think if I was to distill it, it's that, and it moves around, it's sort of wider than that. Mm. Also, daffodils, which were, plant. lots of them are planted by my dad when he was growing up in the same place that I grew up. Yeah, it's gorgeous, you know, all the way along part of where I live, we just have daffodils on like the main road because we had a several afternoons where we were dragged away from our VHS videotapes which were also part of what home means to me to plant daffodils that's a good one yep yep specifically you know Four Weddings and a Funeral Bridget Jones Diary pretty much anything to do with Richard Curtis is is it for me mm-hmm. um Harry Potter audiobooks <gasps> Harry Potter oh, has to be read on audiobook though Stephen Fry reading Harry Potter and Miriam Margley is reading The Little White Horse, which was J.K. Rowling's favourite childhood book. Those definitely make me feel at home. The smell of Jo Malone, Lime and Basil, which is the perfume that my mum used to wear. She doesn't anymore. Yes. Different my reasons. But my mum's perfume. Oh my God, that's yeah. such a good one. That always makes me fly back to childhood. A lot of it is to do with childhood. It is, yeah. And, the and, and because I'm so lucky to have had such a happy wonderful childhood in a beautiful place I think it would be different but maybe it isn't I don't know I think there's always little pockets of happiness and and it's finding those again something that got a lot of love was uh, the wind in the willows wallpaper <laughs> that my mum chose which is in my bathroom I've never seen it anywhere else but I really love it I love um, great. and then music and so I created this playlist of all these songs to do with um home or different places so I, I reference Bear's Den in my Instagram post because I absolutely love them and every time I put on their album the stress just sort of leaves my body and I just breathe deeper and 
feel calmer and more centered what's your view on home being a very complicated place as well for a lot of people particularly this year and just generally especially around holidays and Christmas and you know all the sorts of things that can come up in family dynamics and family life you know we both have divorced parents for example yeah Um, and so as a child home wasn't always the happiest place for me that's my overriding thought when I think of home but it's definitely there I definitely have to be aware of when I'm at home if there are certain things that are coming into coming into play and how it affects me and balancing this situation between my mom and my dad as well Mm -hmm. no I'm really glad that you brought that up actually because the list that I've just given is very idyllic and nostalgic but it's also very specific you know I've I've picked out particular things that I liked and that's not to say that everything was like that all the time so I think that's the difference really and that's why that quote from Charlie Maxey is so important is that home isn't always a place sometimes you can be at the place that you would just offhandedly describe as home but you don't feel at home sometimes you're walking around and you don't feel at home in your own body I think that when you truly are at home that is not attached to a place sometimes it's attached to a person sometimes it's not sometimes it's just a smell a song a taste it's like little things I think that's what I wanted to to say and that even though we've had this very tough year everybody has had varying degrees of difficulties and we lots of people have felt very trapped at home equally lots of people have felt that they want to escape from home or or that they can't go home because of the restrictions you know it's been a really complicated relationship that we've had with this word exactly yeah but it's not about the the offhanded oh I'm going home it's about when you really sit down and think about it what is it that really makes me feel centered grounded Mm. at home and actually Charlie Mackesy makes me feel at home wherever I am every talk that Charlie Mackesy has done I've watched probably twice he is the equivalent for me of going to church and feeling a sense of community and belonging and familiarity he opens up topics in a way that is so accessible and he's so down to earth and he's so he just takes up time and space in a way that I find so comforting he just wanders onto the stage of his TEDx talk he has his dogs with him he has Dill who's his very old Labrador he's so lovely he's just himself and he has simple important things to say such as it's okay to make a mess because it's a process it's a tool it's an it's a support that you have and that's what it was for him he started drawing because his best friend died um and I didn't also know the story about him meeting a queen mother um, which was so significant about how it's brave to express yourself through drawing. I think as well that his ability to say things really simply through his illustrations, like for example, this one where it says, it will be a miracle if we get there, sighed the boy. And, and then it goes on to say, it's a miracle we've got this far, said the horse. And just in that very simple two lines, you go, yes, okay, need to remember how far we've come and not where we're going um and I think he's just so he's so good at doing that and so good at speaking I think for the population especially when during lockdown 
you know, he would have these illustrated up for the NHS, for Captain Sir Tom Moore. And they really do just strike, strike a chord. I think what he's managed to do is pretty amazing. I also love his emphasis on cake and the mole's obsession with cake. Because <laughs> it just it has this little spark of humour that just makes it less serious. And why are we here? To eat cake? <laughs> and then it finishes <laughs> to love and be loved. It's gorgeous. No matter who you are, these are human truths that he's condensed into tiny words. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode of the Figure Podcast. Please leave a review and a comment. We'd love to hear from everyone who listens. Love to hear your thoughts. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.